Appreciate your prayers this weekend for a small little team of people from King Street that are down in Haiti this morning. Uh, for five years, we've had a relationship with a church in Arcaille, Haiti, north of Port-au-Prince, about an hour and a half. And uh, we have seen God do some amazing things there in our Kaye. Uh, we've seen a beautiful church constructed with a balcony and a worshiping community. A school building has been built, a couple hundred kids learning in this school every day, uniforms. We've sent training teams down there, leadership teams. It's really been exciting what these last five years have held for us in our partnership with our Kaye. And we're now looking to take another step. So uh, Pastor Jay, Rodney Mose, uh, Rick Sanders are down doing an exploratory trip on the southern peninsula of uh, Haiti. They are down there this morning. Uh, if you were here a couple of years ago, you might have remembered that we took up an offering uh, because a hurricane blew through the southern peninsula of, of Haiti and just demolished uh, a number of churches that were down there. And that's exactly where Jay and Rodney and Rick are this morning, down in that town. There's some pastors that uh, I know that they've tried to rebuild a little bit, but they still need some roofs on a number of the buildings and whatnot. So we're just looking at some next steps. And uh, they'll be there for next, another couple of days. So hold them in your prayers. I am very excited about where we're headed and what that will look like uh, in, the, uh, in the years to come. So exciting stuff. We're told in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 that the word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword piercing to the very joint and bone and marrow of a person's being. You know, if I were to hand you right now a sword that was double-edged and as sharp as anything that you have ever experienced, unsheathed, if I were to hand that sword to you, I'm going to ask you, would you handle that sword with respect uh, I would think so. I don't think you'd, oh, check this baby out. No, I, I, th I think we would all handle that sword with great respect and, and great reverence in a lot of ways. And uh, we are told that the Word of God is, is that sword. In fact, in Ephesians 6, we're told that, that the Bible is actually the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And with that in mind, and honoring Scripture that way, I don't ask you to do this often, but those of you over in Baker here in the sanctuary, you know what? Even at home, as you are listening right now, I'm going to invite you to your feet as we pay honor to the Word of God, and I'm going to ask you to grab your Bible. I'll put it on the screen as well, but there's something special about reading it. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're going to read together these first 18 verses of John with the thought in mind of, of honoring and reverencing the holy, awesome, powerful, living Word of God. So together, let's read what is known as the prologue of John, verses 1 through 18. This is out of the NIV. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. 
In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. The Word of God. Please be seated. Amen. So, I want to ask anyone in the room ever heard of osmium? Osmium. I see that hand. We have a chemist among us. Anyone else? Osmium. Two people know what osmium Well, then it's good you came this morning because osmium is the densest chemical element. How about that? Of all of the elements, osmium is considered the densest, closest packed together. Which It's a metal. Osmium has a density of around 22 grams per cubic centimeter, about twice the density of lead. Now, just to make this just as clear as I can make it, I want you to see... I mean, you look here and you say, well, there's... No! <laughs> there's a D! There is a D over the part that doesn't have the D in the parentheses part. And over here, we can see the movement from ho to O. And it's got little cool little thingies there to show you. This is important. Osmium. All right, let me... Uh, let me try to make it a little, little simpler to understand. Um, this is uh, a paper bag, grocery bag. And if I were to fill this grocery bag almost to the top with osmium, 
it would weigh a little more than a Ford F-150. That's dense. (laughs) Right? That's dense. And as I thought about the prologue of John, these 18 verses known as the prologue, the introduction to the gospel of John, as I thought about preaching today about and out of John's prologue, I thought of density. (laughs) I thought of of a paper bag filled with the most densest 18 verses, really, I would tell you, in all of Scripture. I listened to a number of sermons from some great preachers through the years uh, in preparing for for this message today. I'm just loving digging into the gospel of John with you. And one of the sermons I listened to was of a great theologian, author, R.C. Sproul. Some of you maybe have heard of of R.C. Sproul. And there was a message R.C. Sproul preached that he was talking about John 1, 1 through 18, the prologue, and he said this. I was really struck. No portion of the New Testament captured the imagination and the attention of the Christian intellectual community for the first three centuries than the prologue to John's gospel. Okay, let that one sink in for a minute. The first three centuries, the first 300 years of the church, that's a long time, 300 years. And these were the foundational years of the church working out their statements of faith, creedal statements, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the various creedal statements where they would come together and meet and and discuss who is Jesus, what is God's word to us? What about the Trinity? What about So as the, the first 300 years of the church was meeting, no other portion of the New Testament captured the imagination and the attention of these folks than these 18 verses. In the church's attempt to understand the person of Christ in Trinitarian terms, God the Father, Son, and Spirit, The church was virtually, check this out, virtually preoccupied with this high view of Christ that is expressed in the prologue. Do you want to hear what he's saying here? He's saying that these first 18 verses are so dense, so heavy, that it took them 300 years to even start to pull them apart. To start to understand who God is and who Jesus is. When we look at the, uh, at the prologue, it is incredibly powerful. The great news is I'm going to be able to really unpack it for you in the next 18 minutes. So you are in the right place. That, no. That's my point. But let's at least give it a look. Let's at least pull out some of the The big parts. (laughs) Verse 14, the word became flesh, incarnation, Christmas. We can get that, right? 
The Word became flesh and made His, a person, dwelling among us. What do we see in verse 14? The Word is clearly Jesus. In fact, Word of God is one of Jesus' names. Revelation chapter 19 is describing, don't look at it, but I'll read it for you real quick. Verses 11 down to 13 is describing the return of Jesus at the end of times. And John, John writes, I saw heaven standing open, there before me a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war his eyes like blazing fire on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is capital W, Word of God. The Word is Jesus. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Jesus is the one and only Son who came from the Father. Okay, we're establishing some really basic truths. The Word is Jesus. Jesus is the one. Look at verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word. What do we see there? Jesus existed in the beginning. Hearkening back to the first four words of the whole Bible, in the beginning, God, Jesus. But not only did Jesus exist in the beginning and the word was with God, Jesus was with God, this establishes that there are two persons present in, in this particular verse. God the Father, Jesus the Son. We also know that it, the Holy Spirit was present. That's not part of this prologue because John is focusing on Jesus. But we see Jesus was with God the Father and the Word was God. Jesus was not only with God, but he was God. What does that mean? In my basic layman terms, it means that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are all three made of God DNA, God stuff. Not human stuff, not mortal stuff, not material stuff, not created stuff, but uncreated stuff. Uncreated DNA, God DNA, three distinct persons, not the same person, but all three made of the same God DNA together. Jesus, in the beginning, with God the Father, was God himself. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. What do we see there? Jesus created everything. So when we read of creation in Genesis 1.1, we see clearly who's doing the creating. It's Jesus. The power of his, what? Word. Let there be light. And there was light. In fact, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the source of light 
and life. Jump down to verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The power of the name of Jesus is the power of rebirth. Rebirth. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. Anyone who receives Jesus, who believes in his name, is reborn as a child of God. You talk about the, an F-150 in a grocery bag. My goodness. The power of what is being said. And I ask this question. Why did John begin his gospel this way? Why? Why did John introduce his gospel with such powerful words? Such clear declaration of who Jesus is. How many of you are familiar with the words inductive and deductive? This, these two words are ascribed to a, a different ways of reasoning, logic. There is inductive, which is basically bottom-up reasoning. You start with a question, and you work your way through till you come to a conclusion. Deductive is the other way. It is top-down reasoning. You start with a declaration, and then you support it with various proofs that back it up. Bottom up, top down. This is also true in the way people preach or the way that they write. A, a, a good mystery is deductive or inductive. There's a little quiz for you. Is a good mystery novel inductive or deductive? The answer is inductive. You start with a question. What's the question in a good murder mystery? Who done it? Mm, I don't know. And then you look at the clues and come to a conclusion. If you read a deductive version of a mystery model it, uh, novel, it would start with John killed Sam. Now let's get into the mystery of this novel. <laughs> well, there's no more mystery. I know John killed Sam. Okay. Inductive preaching asks a question, right? Bottom up. You start with a question and you arrive at the answer toward the end of the sermon. Deductive is the opposite. In deductive, see, you didn't even realize this was going on, did you? <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. In deductive preaching, you give the declarative statement up front and then support it. So the styles differ by whether the listener hears the point you're going to make up front or they hear the question and then arrive at the answer through a progression. Am I making sense? Does this make sense? Why do I bring this up? Because it is absolutely pertinent as we enter the Gospel of John versus Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You probably didn't realize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke basically wrote inductive Gospels. They started, all three of them started, with a question. That question was, who is Jesus? Who, let me give you an example. I know I'm not preaching out of Mark today, but look with me real quickly at Mark chapter 4. I'm going to just illustrate this for you real quick. So it kind of jumps off the page at you. Once you start seeing this, you go, whoa, check that out. Mark chapter 4. You've got Jesus calling the disciples... John being one of them, Peter, James. And they are following Jesus, but they don't really know who he is. They 
are betting on, banking their life on the fact that he's important. <laughs> but they don't, how do I know they don't know who he is? Put, put him in the boat with him. Jesus, they go out at, late at night and, and a big storm blows up. Verse 37, Mark 4. The boat's nearly swamped. Jesus is actually asleep. And the disciples rouse him and say, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Okay, let me tell you right now. They wouldn't have asked that question if they knew who he was. Is God going to drown? No. I'll answer that question. No. He got up, rebuked the wind and the waves, quiet, be still. Then the winds died down, completely calm. His disciples, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you, do you still have no faith? Faith in what? Who he was, that he's God. In fact, they were terrified. Look at verse 41. They were terrified and asked each other, ah, who is this? Right? Inductive. Starting with a question. Who is Jesus? Then it moves to a gradual sense of awareness. I won't walk you through it, but if you were to look at Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 29, for the, those of you taking notes at home, we have, that's the description of Jesus in Caesarea Philippi saying to his disciples, hey guys, who do people say I am? Who do people say I am? Oh, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah. Okay, that's cool. What, what question does Jesus ask next? Who do you say I am? What about you? Who am I? It's the question of the Gospels. Who am I? Well, Peter, you got to love Peter. He says what? You're the Messiah. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, this is still gradual awareness because we come to a scenario, in fact, I'll point it out here in a minute, where even at the resurrection, Peter didn't fully understand what was going on. But it was gradual awareness. Really, the cool thing about the Gospel of Mark, well, there's a billion cool things, but one of them is you then look at Mark, okay, taking notes at home, chapter 15, verse 30, oh, I have to look, 39, 38, uh, Mark 15, verse 39. This is the cross, and this is the whole point of the gospel of Mark, to answer the question, who is Jesus? We've got gradual awareness. We've got the disciples answering the question, but then we come down to the cross, and we find at the cross, and by the way, let me remind you, Mark was written for a Gentile audience, a lot of people living in the Roman world, Gentiles, us mostly. And at the cross, we have a Roman centurion that it's, I, I just got to read it for you. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely, what did he say? Come on. You are the son of God. Inductive. Coming down to a conclusion you flip it around and you look at John, and John begins with the declaration, you are Messiah. I mean, my goodness, think of the grocery bag full of osmium. 
There has never been a more power-packed description of who Jesus is ever penned in the history of the world. 300 years they're trying to figure this baby out. You are Messiah. But then John then follows it with confirming signs. I'm so excited this year to preach through John. We're going to look at all of these signs that point back to this reality and ultimately, John 20, 31, I have written these things so that you might, what? Believe, with what I started out with telling you, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life in his Name. John wants us to know in 18 verses what it took him three years to figure out. Let that one sink in. He wants us to know in 18 verses what it took him three years to figure out. And it took him three years. Because we even come, I preached on this, mentioned this last Sunday, at the, at the tomb Peter and John are running to the tomb, right? They get there. Peter goes in first. John then goes in. They look in the tomb. They see the strips of linen lying there. And it it wasn't until that moment that they fully believed. What did they believe? What did John believe? Oh, he's alive. He's not dead. He's the son of God. Death could not hold him. In fact, John even gives us a parenthesis. He says, they, him and Peter, still didn't understand, even to this point, up to this point, from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. He still didn't get it until this point. It took John three years to figure out exactly who Jesus was, and that's why he writes a deductive gospel. He says, I'm going to tell you right out of the gate, who Jesus is. Let me unpack the bag for you one more time. The word is Jesus. Jesus is the one and only son who came from the father. Jesus existed in the beginning. Jesus was with God the father and was God himself. Jesus created everything. Jesus is the source of light and life and anyone who receives Jesus, who believes in his name, is reborn as a child of God. Church, that's the good news. Amen. Amen. And it doesn't get any more clear than that. It's dense, but it's clear. And that's exactly why John wrote his gospel. You know what? We don't need to waste any more time figuring this out. You, if you don't know who Jesus is, over there in Baker at home, if you don't know who Jesus is, I just told you, one day, one day, everyone will see him for who he is. Every knee will bow. One day, the weight of the truth of who Jesus is will fall on every heart.
You know what it says on that day when Jesus comes back and the trumpet sounds? It says, and the nations will, you know what the next word is? Mourn. Do you know why the nations will mourn? Because they hadn't believed. You have the opportunity today to believe. Believe. Put your faith in Jesus. Believe in who he is. Believe that he died for you. Believe that he rose again. Believe that he ascended to the Father. Believe that he rules and reigns. Believe that he is the source of light and life. Believe that he can give you life. Believe that you're born again, transformed when you invite him into your heart. Believe it. Humble your heart before Jesus and believe it. Confess Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. (laughs) Amen. Thank you, Jesus. What a beautiful name it is. Worship team, go ahead and join me on the platform over in the baker's saying, What a beautiful name it is. Jesus, the name of Jesus. Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. Lord, we put our faith in you right now. Jesus, we cry out to you. Save me. Fill me. Forgive me. Rescue me. Transform me. We give you our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.